Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, one of the things that we've learned in this time of pandemic and our great American distance learning experiment is that not every kid has equal access to the internet. That's absolutely true. And in preparing for uh, another podcast that you and I are going to be doing after this, I was thinking through one of the questions that they had, and the question was, you know, what are the resources that you're finding really indispensable right now? And my answer was an atlas and an internet connection, because I spend an hour a day with my daughter. We open up the atlas, and we talk about a place in the world, and our conversations lead us into discussions about astronomy, or geology, or history, or ecology, which invariably sends me to the internet, where I can find the answers to every one of her questions. And so the digital divide is particularly hitting home for me as I'm realizing how much I'm relying on my internet connection to enable me to homeschool my daughter. Well, so Jack, one of the things that I've been wondering about as I read all these stories about the digital divide and and I've been interviewing people all over the country is why? Why is it that we have this digital divide? And you you hear it like in uh, in a lot of these stories, it's presented almost as though it's a force of nature right? Like the ocean (laughs) happens to be near me because I live in a coastal community. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Some people have accidentally chosen to live in an area where the internet doesn't reach. (laughs) (laughs) We ran out of, we ran out of cable. Well, Jack, you'll be happy to know that the hard work of this episode has all been done by me. I'm glad to see that nothing has changed. (laughs) So I've been interviewing uh, parents and teachers about the the issues that they've been confronting, both urban and rural, when it comes to accessing the internet. And I also lined up an expert for us who's going to talk about how this has become such a problem and what can be done about it. But I didn't. So you've left you've left no tasks for me. Oh no, I've got a big task for you, Jack. Your challenge is to spend... I I feel like this is one of the quote-unquote big tasks I give my daughter when she asks to help me out. Go go on. Well, have you ever ever given her the task of boning up on the history of rural electrification? I have not, but that sounds like a good one. I am really glad I have an internet connection. How much time do I have? You have the length of this episode, so you better get to work. We're hearing a lot about the digital divide these days, but what does it actually mean? In short, while fast, affordable internet is considered a public benefit in other industrialized countries, not so here. In the suburbs, it's slow. In rural areas, it's often non-existent. And in the cities, it's expensive. And with the entire country now in the throes of a massive experiment in remote learning, well, the gaps between internet have and have-nots are glaring. Nima Avashia is a teacher at the John W. McCormick School in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And as you're about to hear, she sums up the problem we face right now in about 30 seconds. 
we we don't have public Wi-Fi in America. And and I think probably that's like one of the biggest challenges that like we really need to be talking about is what does it look like for there to be like broadly accessible Wi-Fi that's there for everybody, regardless of income that you don't have to sign up for, that you don't have to um, go and get somewhere. But that like, if we're going to move to virtual learning in public schools, like if that's a move we're going to make, then we also need to have publicly accessible internet. So there is the problem neatly summed up, which leaves us with two questions. How did we get here and what do we do now? Well, fortunately, I have somebody standing by who has lots to say about both topics. Christopher Mitchell heads up the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And pretty much wherever there's an effort underway to make internet access cheaper, faster, and more, well, public, Christopher is there. I asked him to start by explaining how we got here. How did we end up with such disparities when it comes to who can access the internet? There are a lot of disparities in how we access the internet because this is sort of a natural place in what happens when you build infrastructure. Um, We came to this place with electricity. Uh, We came to this place with uh, water systems. um, And generally, we overcame it. And then in the history books, we mostly skip (laughs) this point of of history, I think. Um, But this isn't anything new. Um, What we have is a system that has largely been expanded uh, by private companies uh, with a focus on how they can be profitable. Um, Because of the nature of the economics of broadband, Uh, That has led to consolidation and a few very large companies like Comcast and Charter Spectrum being the dominant providers. Um, We're actually kind of fortunate in that they do cover almost all of the metro areas in which they operate. We see see very little cable redlining, and so that's a benefit. But it's also – there's an effective um, disengagement from their prices being too high. And then in, in rural areas, very large companies like AT&T, CenturyLink, and Frontier have just refused to invest in rural areas. And we've thrown a lot of money at them to try to encourage them to do more investment. And they mostly uh, have done the minimum that's required of them. And, and we end up here. It's entirely predictable based on how we went about expanding broadband. One of the things I discovered as I was getting up to speed for this episode is that something like 25 states have laws on the books that either ban or block municipal broadband. I did not take this news well, and I'm guessing that this must be something that infuriates you as well. Oh, it it does make my blood boil, and and unfortunately also sometimes spittle come out of my mouth as I get so excited, which I can't do anymore with the the pandemic. the, I mean, but actually, we could set this in history as well. Uh, with electricity, the electric companies did not want to invest in the entire city. They wanted to build to industrial areas and then some wealthy neighborhoods. Uh, and so cities started building their own networks. And uh, eventually, uh, 4,000 cities had built their own electric grids. And there's still 2,000 of them that operate today. The rest have been often privatized or they combined um, to have one city run it for a couple of neighboring cities. Um, But in broadband, we saw similar things even before we had broadband, back with cable television services where smaller cities built their own systems. And when it got to a point where the federal government decided that we were not going to have monopolies for telephone or cable or anything, the cable and telephone companies got wise. And they said, well, if we restrict competition from local governments, 
then we'll be able to carve up the markets however we want. And they went state by state. They passed uh, laws in some 19 states. Uh, this is a major fight in the mid-2000s, around the time that Wi-Fi was coming out. And uh, fortunately, Intel, Dell, and some other companies like Microsoft lined up with public interest groups um, to stop it, or else we might see 40 states that have some kind of restriction. Um, but yeah, we have 19 states in which local governments either cannot um, uh, build a network or they have to jump through some series of hoops to discourage them. And this has done nothing to encourage private sector investment. It's just restricted the overall amount of investment we see in these different areas. So say I'm living in a state with one of these laws on the books, and as I found out, Massachusetts is one of them. How does that affect me as someone who is reliant on the internet? Well, I'd like to use the example of North Carolina because it has one of the most egregious laws. It was written by Time Warner Cable 10 years ago and uh, debated over and over again and only passed when um, a very Tea Party-led group um, in North Carolina took power. Um, and and so today, if you think of a person uh, in eastern North Carolina who may have supported that, who continued to support a lot of that ideology, they now are in a situation in which they cannot get broadband um, from uh, the companies like AT&T or CenturyLink that have not prioritized building out in much of eastern North Carolina. Um, and their, their county commissioners can't do anything about it. I mean, we were recently speaking with one who she herself is a strong supporter of of the Republican Party, of Donald Trump, and is just furious that she has no power to try to improve access for businesses and residents that live um, within her county and in more rural areas where there's not a very good business case, but the state has said that the local government can't build out. I mean, there's actually a crazy part of this, (laughs) which is that the federal government and the state government both admit they don't even know what parts of states have broadband and which don't. And we know that the local governments do know it because people complain about it and have been asking them to fix it for years. But they're not allowed to fix it in some of these states because a powerful cable or telephone company or combination has restricted that investment. Another one of those states happens to be a favorite have-you-heard destination. That would be Michigan. And I had a chance to talk to the superintendent of schools in Northport, Neil Weatherby. Northport, which is way up north of Traverse City, has 150 kids in the schools. And as Neil explains, the internet is great if you're in the center of town or on the main road into town. But the problem is that that isn't where most people actually live. Um, But once you... Um, go past the, the village, which there's a, most of the townships north of the village. Um, you know, there's um, almost no um, um, broadband available. And what and what complicates things even more for us is that um, we have very limited um, cell phone coverage in parts of the, the area as well. So we can't we can't even deploy um, hotspots into a lot of our um, places that don't have internet because they don't have cell phone coverage either. Residents of this area have spent years trying to deal with this problem, but Neil says that a real solution will require convincing people that internet access is as essential as electricity or water. I think it's I think it's truly a shift in, in mindset. I think that right now the internet to 
um, for, you know, for a lack of a better word, the older generations is, is a luxury. It's, it's something that's not critical. I think at this point, it's essentially utility. I mean, you, you can't, you can't function in modern society without having internet access to, to, to pay your bills, to um, you know, email your teachers. Um, to, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a utility at this point. And so I think that it's not, it's not here outside of the village because it's not profitable. So, Christopher, we just heard about this profitability problem up in northwestern Michigan. It's an issue all across rural America. Break it down for us. Well, in, in rural areas, we see the cost is uh, quite significant um, per household. That's the, that's the trick. Uh, because it may actually be cheaper per mile to build a broadband network in rural areas where you maybe you can put it on the poles or maybe it's easier to throw it underground than it is where you have to dig up a sidewalk or a street. Um, so it may be cheaper per mile to build in rural areas, but you have fewer people to split those costs up, uh, across. You're a big proponent of cooperatives as a way to provide high-quality broadband to rural areas. And you argue that co-ops have a different definition of profitability than, say, AT&T or Comcast. Their return on investment is not just the dollars from the people who subscribe, but the fact that the community is better off as measured by the number of jobs, as measured by educational opportunity, um, the, the general quality of life. Um, you know, these are all things that go into their return on investment calculation because they actually live there. Um, you know, one of the, the rules that, that we have when we're thinking about this from my organization at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is that um, it's hard to define when you go from being a community-based company or cooperative to being too big for that. And an easy test is, does the person who's making decisions at the top know the names of all the towns that a decision is impacting. And in the case of AT&T and CenturyLink, it's obviously not. Um, and so the economics of this are a bit different than people think. People will assume it's not profitable to build in rural areas. But many rural areas can support an investment even without a subsidy. And then if you get into the areas that do require subsidies, it's, it's often less than you'd think as long as the right entity with the right business model is the one making the investment. Um, you know, we will pay less for a cooperative to build fiber than it would cost to try to incent AT&T to build fiber into rural areas. And that's because the co-op has a much broader view of, of the return on investment it would get from that. And the same is true for a municipality. We're going to take another little field trip now. We're headed to New Orleans, which has the worst digital divide in the country. Ashana Begard is a parent advocate in New Orleans. And even before the pandemic, the lack of internet access was a serious problem for the city's students. Prior to this um, COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, well, I would say at least four years, I have been advocating for parents because schools have been assigning homework to children who don't have internet access and then penalizing them, right? Because they couldn't get the assignments done, couldn't get the homework done, and it was affecting their grade. And I kept going to the schools and saying, hey, 99% of the kids at your school are on free lunch. So you know this, I, this is high poverty. Um, first of all, it's a high poverty city. Um, 30, with 39% of our children overall are in poverty. Um, it, that's just, you know, that's what it is. Child poverty is extremely high in New Orleans. Um, but 
I would go and tell the schools that they couldn't discriminate against children and that they needed to give them assignments that weren't dependent on the internet because they didn't have internet, despite the fact that we are um, all charter city and the big promises of charter schools and the, the reform movement was that everybody would have technology. And that was before New Orleans emerged as an epicenter for COVID-19 and the city's economy cratered. A large percentage of our city, because we're such a tourist-based city, um, anything from waitresses to cooks to um, to prep cooks to busboys to just anything, um, musicians, everything in the, in the whole tourism industry is shut down. And so cable, which is between, in, in Cox cable, which is between $99 and $150, is a luxury. So it is the first bill that you're probably not going to pay because, like my sister said, her immediate needs are rent and food. <laughs> you know, like, that's it. So, Christopher, the issue of being unable to access the internet because of cost is obviously a little different from what we heard about in a rural community like Northwest Michigan. Walk us through the story in urban areas. Historically, cable networks were built with local franchising, and those local franchises generally required that everyone be served. And so as the broadband networks were included in the cable networks when it went from being just TV to also being broadband, it made sense from a technological point of view to to do that everywhere. And so we don't see Comcast or Charter really only having upgraded wealthy parts of town. Um, generally, the entire urban area has access to the same speeds, more or less. Um, and that's that's great, but what we have is about four times as many people in urban areas cannot afford to connect even though the technology is available to them if they had the money, um, as we have people in rural areas who don't have the ability to connect because the infrastructure is not there. Um, And I think there's a number of reasons that we don't talk about the higher number of of people in urban areas. Um, I think there's some some reasons um, around race. Um, You know, it tends to be people of color who have been left behind, um, but also because the cable lobbyists are so effective in state legislatures that Um, If you want to start talking about how to solve urban broadband problems, they'll say, well, how are you going to spend money for in this area where we've already made all these investments and people can connect and you have people on these farms who cannot connect and desperately need something. And so almost every state legislature has dealt only with the rural problem and ignored the urban challenges. So, Jack, I want to bring you back in. I know you're working really hard to bring yourself up to speed on the history of rural electrification. He's working so hard. <laughs> How was I supposed to say something there? No, sorry. I'm I'm buried in Wikipedia right now and clicking through U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, sites. So, sorry. Yes, you were saying something, Jennifer? So, yes, I want to pivot just a little bit, and I want to run a hypothesis by you. As we're hearing from our expert and this testimony from around the country from people for whom internet access is such a big issue, I'm becoming more and more enraged with a particular group at whom my rage is often directed, and those would be education reformers. This to me seems like an example where the insistence of only focusing on in-school factors has turned out to be lunatic. 
Jennifer, it sounds like you're reading the columns written by your co-host. That's so unlike you. No comment. Yeah, I I weighed in on this because I, like you, Jennifer, was uh, really struck by the divide between what we've been hearing from reformers from the past 10 to 20 years about the critical importance of school uh, in students' lives, which, you know, nobody doubts that school is important in the lives of students, but we've so often heard that school is the factor that will determine young people's futures. And Within schools, we have been told repeatedly that teachers are the most important variable. And this, of course, is true if you overlook the fact that the primary shaper of a student's future uh, is a set of -of out-of-school variables like the home environment, the neighborhood environment, uh, parental access to resources. And the reformers who have made the case that teachers and schools are responsible alone for shaping young people's futures um, have really distracted us from all of the work we need to do outside of schools to ensure opportunities for young people so that when they show up at school, they are able to learn. Uh, And I think right now we're really seeing that because outside of school, some kids are getting every possible support imaginable and other kids are getting very little. It has nothing to do with how much their parents love them and it has very little to do with their schools at this point. It really has to do with privilege and disadvantage that we see in our society. Christopher, one thing that I find really encouraging about this issue is that you can potentially find a lot of agreement between voters who don't usually agree on much urban and rural, Republicans and Democrats. I'm curious, how does the issue of making internet access universal play out with voters? This is not at all partisan at the local level. Um, you know, as I as sort of a, was talking about with the North Carolina story of, um, of a person who may be a Tea Party enthusiast who is very frustrated that the state has then created legislation that was written by Time Warner Cable to restrict competition, we see a strong disconnect between the Republican base, people who vote Republican, and the Republicans in state houses and in D.C. on broadband issues. There's just a a strong feeling among people who vote Republican that this decision should be made locally. Um, We see similar numbers of Democrats, actually, and in some cases we see Democrats um, also um, acting in ways that are um, influenced by cable companies that um, are out of sync with their uh, base as well. The pandemic has made the digital divide so visible right now, and it seems like this is an issue where we really have an opening to push for something better. I'm curious to hear what kind of demands you think we should be making. If I if I had an ask for people, it would be to say, you should definitely demand from your leaders at all levels that we do more to improve access, to encourage competition, and to um, restrict the power of the biggest companies. Um, Because the, the general sense in the United States government for 24 years, since 1996, has been that the government has an obligation to remove barriers to investment, and in doing so, it will lead to all kinds of competition flourishing. And there is a sense now from a number of folks, and there's a great report from an organization called the Benton Society, the Benton Institute for Internet and Society, that lays this out that we need government to actually encourage competition, to encourage investment in specific areas, even if that upsets powerful incumbents. 
because removing barriers to investment is not getting the job done to making sure everyone has high-quality internet access. That was Christopher Mitchell. He heads up the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And he's also the host of his own podcast called Community Broadband Bits. Thanks also to Nima Avashia, Ashana Begard, and Neil Weatherby for sharing their stories. Now let's see if Jack has finished his homework assignment. Okay, Jack, the moment that our listeners have been waiting for has finally arrived. It's not arrived. just them. I've been, I've been waiting for this moment too, Jennifer. Go I think ahead. we're all eager to hear how you did, what you've learned about rural electrification. So the Rural Electrification Act was rolled out uh, and signed by President Roosevelt in 1936, a part of the New Deal package, and it enabled the federal government to make loans for rural electrification. This was a response to the failure of private power companies who were either unwilling or unable to create because they couldn't wring a profit out of that. Is this a good start, Jennifer? Oh my you gosh, you're, to you're go doing into more detail. You're doing so well. I never. No. I am on the edge of my seat. I even read primary documents to be able to uh, talk about this. Um, I think another really important point is that it wasn't just a one-off program where the federal government, in response to a time of crisis, uh, used government funds to roll out uh, a program to provide electricity. That about 10 years later in 1949, and so this is after the end of the Second World War, the U.S. is well out of the Great Depression, um, telephone was added to the program, right? So they used the precedent of rural electrification to then provide an additional service that was not being provided to people because of a market failure. Um, and as a result of that, people got access to a technology that by that time was pretty standard in most densely populated communities, but still had yet to reach rural communities. Still good? You want me to keep going? How much more do you want here? I could go all day. Well, I just want to know if there's anything else that really stands out to you as relevant to today as you look back at that history. Like, with, I mean, I guess the, you know, the reason we're, that we're talking about this today is that we confronted a similar set of circumstances before and we did something about it. Yeah, I think that one thing that stands out to me is the issue of race. Uh, so, you know, when we rolled out electricity and telephone to people, it was two predominantly white communities. And so when we're talking today about broadband access, I think there is generally, as far as I was able to tell by you know, reading through the various arguments, some of which have been made in the halls of government for rural broadband access, but there tends to be less political will for extending broadband access, particularly free broadband access, in urban communities which would better serve communities of color. Well, Jack, you did a fantastic job. And to show my appreciation, I actually have a little surprise for you. This, I ordinarily, I would hope for something like a, a pun based mug or a t shirt, but I don't know what the surprise could be over Zoom. Well, when we did our last episode, and I revealed to you that we didn't actually have a 60 seconds of sunshine, and you were oh, so, Jennifer, you were you did so it. disappointed. So I got right on it. And I yes. have one for you. Are you ready? I'm so excited. Yes. 
When I heard about a group of teachers in Philly who've been encouraging their colleagues to donate part or all of their stimulus checks to help out Philadelphians who are struggling, I had to know more. So I called up Adam Bailey. He's a fourth grade teacher, and he's part of a group within the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers called the Caucus of Working Educators. And after COVID-19 hit, they, or we, as the caucus is known, started thinking about how to help families in need. We realized that for some of us, our finances weren't changing during this time. You know, we're single people and we're still getting our salaries or we're still getting our salaries and our partners are still getting paid. So a lot of our financial situations didn't change. And so when the stimulus check was uh, suggested by the federal government, right, it was, I think by a lot of people's standard, was too little, too late. And... Um, you know, we sort of realized that too, like, yeah, it should be the job of so many other government organizations to take care of people right now, but they're not doing a good job of it. So how can we as union members whose roots are in mutual aid, um, how can we assist other people? And so that's where the idea really came from. One group that needed help paraprofessionals. They are teachers' aides, and because they make so little money, they often work second jobs just to make ends meet. So Adam and his colleagues in the caucus set up what they called the Parapower Relief Fund to help out. In our schools, in our, in, uh, in our union, paraprofessionals are special education assistants, they're classroom assistants, they're climate staff, they're counseling assistants that do interpretation for families. They're like they're integral glue that holds school communities together. And the base pay before taxes is $15,000. So already someone's working a full day of work right alongside me. Many of them have a degree. Um, some of them have years of experience in related fields and they're, you know, they're making a poverty wage. You know, the, the idea of the fund is, if someone's in a tough spot, maybe they lost that service sector job that they had. Maybe their partner got laid off. Maybe there's something that wasn't planned for. Para, the Parapower Relief Fund is a $500 grant to help you through this time right now. And the money is all pooled from your fellow union members in a true act of worker solidarity. So far, about 70 teachers have accepted the challenge, and while more would be great, Adam says he has been thrilled with the response. I think 100 people would be amazing, but I think even just 68 is really great to see that there's people who, you know, you're getting this money that people feel like it's due to them, that as teachers, we're, we're underpaid and we're overworked, and it's always been that way. In Philadelphia, we're, you know, we're still not made up for the contract freezes of the years past. And so we feel like a lot of people feel like, yeah, I'm this, I, I have earned this money. I'm due this money. But, you know, to see that 68 people looked at this and said, you know what? I am due some money, but there's other people really hurting right now. And I can forego this check to really help someone who's in a really tough spot. That's a really like great glimmer of hope for me. And it shows me that some people really embrace the idea of solidarity, which is what unionism is all about. Anything else you want to tell us, Adam? My name is Adam Bailey from the Caucus Oregon Educators, and this is my 60 Seconds of Sunshine. That was really good. Uh, when we cooked this idea up, uh, 
however many weeks ago, back when we were living in a different world, we felt like then we needed something a little bit uplifting at the end of each show. And I think now that's more true than ever. Well, Jack, and if you do feel so moved, you could always donate part of your stimulus check to a co-host in need. That is something that we can discuss in the weeds, Jennifer. (laughs) Well, speaking of financial support, I just want to take this opportunity to give a big shout out to our Patreon supporters. This podcast is brought to you by listeners. We don't take any ads. Jack doesn't get to read the text for an ed tech product much as he might like to. We ask people to go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll find all the cool extras that you get just by chipping in a couple bucks a month. And one of them is a feature that we like to call in the weeds. That's where Jack and I go and we we go after the show and we we get our full sort of wonk sensibility on. And um, Jack's going to be wearing his mask today. And I thought, Jack, that we could talk about, you know, the sort of the narrative about remote learning or distance learning is that it's it's really been a flop as far as how many kids are being left behind, um, the trouble that districts are having getting up to speed, but not everyone is disappointed. If you read the commentary on the right, people are thrilled with the experiment. And I thought that that would be a good thing for us to dig into in the weeds. What do you think? I will be extra protected behind my face mask for that discussion, uh, but I am excited for it. And for those who want to support the show in a different way, there are lots of ways to do it. I think the best is to just tell people about us. Jennifer and I both really get excited when we hear somebody recommending the show to somebody else or we see that on Twitter. Um, It just makes us feel like the show is good enough for you to feel like uh, you want to share it with folks. Um, It also helps if you go on and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, uh, you can engage with the show's Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. We've gotten lots of good show ideas, and it also helps to buoy everyone's spirits these days. Well, I know my spirits are feeling substantially more buoyed, Jack, after spending this time with you. This has been one of the highlights of my day, Jennifer. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 